You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. All of the work that a clerk does to get a file ready to be adjudicated for payment back to a veteran or for some type of manifest at at one of our logistics agencies, you have to do that work. It's necessary to get to the more meaningful, let's call that high value work, that meaningful work that says, I'm doing analysis on a report. I'm sitting in a meeting talking about a new policy and I don't have to worry about the backlog of work that's piling up at my desk because my bot is sitting there doing that work for me. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. As we explore strategically at what the next normal could look like, many emerging technologies will have mainstream adoption across the government landscape. In my opinion, one of those technologies will undoubtedly be RPA, or Robotic Process Automation. RPA will continue to grow as a valuable tool for government leaders because it allows the immediate expansion and scaling of human labor without impacting their existing systems, which is crucial right now with the pervasive challenge they have with legacy IT. Whenever agencies try to automate tasks, there's often a significant development effort. And with RPA, an agency can implement and test on a small scale and then quickly expand to automate additional manual tasks. And while the technology has widespread use across many sectors, RPA is uniquely positioned to help government agencies maintain and deliver quality citizen services while ensuring that government employees can focus on a higher value work. Think about it this way. Any mundane operation that does not require subjectivity of humans can be a potential candidate for the RPA technology. According to a recent report from the U.S. federal government, RPA program maturity grew 70% between fiscal years 2019 and 2020. Additionally, the report found that the number of automations rose from 219 in fiscal 19 to 460 in fiscal 20, a 110% green. The annual hours automation save increased by 195% as well. That translates to 1,708 more hours that users could leverage to focus on a higher value work per automated use case. And joining the show today to help us understand this technology and how it will affect the future of government work is Jim Walker, the Federal Chief Technology Officer at UiPath. Jim also has 32 years of leadership experience in government, where he served as the Deputy CIO at NASA, as well as executive positions in the Department of Defense. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned in the opening, you served as Deputy CIO at NASA before joining UiPath, so I'm guessing you've been following the Mars rover coverage pretty closely, haven't you? I have been. So at the NASA Shared Services Center down in Stennis, Mississippi, a lot of the testing for um, components of that was put together, and that's where I was working. That's just an amazing feat, what we can do when we when we put our combined brains together, because the ability to drop that thing on Mars is not just dropping a solid thing. It has to have about 15 or 20 different things happen uh, in order for it to land. So it's an incredible um, opportunity for us to kind of regain our space. Um, dominance. I, I don't geek out about things pretty easily, but I was having this conversation with my wife, who's a, a STEM teacher. And to me, it, it's so cool that we, we got the rover there and landed it. But 
to me, the fact that it's transmitting photographs and videos from Mars is just, it's unexplainable. It's, ama- it's amazing, the fact that we've gotten to this point. It's really cool. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, interesting little conversation real quick. Uh, the former director of NASA, Charlie Bolden, was down at the Shared Services Center one day, and he was talking to us, and he said, you know, there's going to come a point in the manned spacecraft to Mars where they look out their rearview mirror and they, they really can't see Earth. They're going to look ahead of them, and they really can't pick out Mars. And he said the beauty of working for NASA is we don't know what we need to invent in order to make sure that they go and come back from that trip strong and healthy. And the challenges that NASA face are just incredibly amazing to just even think about. Uh, and it's certainly a great place and a, something that we can be, you know, as a nation, proud that we have uh, that others really can't compete with. It's such a different mindset, it sounds like, with the people working there. Um, it's, it had to be a cool environment to work in. It was. Well, to our topic today on RPA, the reason why... RPA got started in the first government agency of NASA was NASA had an innovation challenge and some 99 teams competed uh, for some small seed money in order to do program. And uh, RPA competed against those 99. It was one of the 10 finalists that was funded and the birth of RPA and the federal government started there at the Shared Services Center because innovation can be for space innovation can be for office space. Let's kick off our, our conversation, our RPA right there. Explain to the listeners, I mean, I, I'm guessing most of the folks listening have heard of RPA. There's going to be some people that are, are really well-versed in it, but others that are just kind of scratching the surface. Why don't you explain to us what RPA really is? Yeah, so it's software robotics that sits with you on your computer or in a ser- server room on a computer that emulates the work that a person does, right? And and the emulation is really, what do you do with your mouse and your keyboard on a screen that is repetitive, mundane, boring? It's it's that work that you have to do that is absolutely necessary to make sure that your agency's mission can be accomplished, but it's not necessary for you to do it anymore. You want to be doing the work and freeing up yourself to do that interesting work to help discover what is that thing we need to do better. You know, and to do that, you need to be freed up from that necessary but low value work so that as the OMB memorandum 1823 calls for, for you to be able to move to higher value and more cerebral work. I've had a number of CIOs on the show, and one of the things that I like to ask them, whether it's current CIOs or, or former CIOs, which, which you fall in, into the latter, is when the pandemic hit, um, there was this pivot, uh, obviously, and, and kind of a knee-jerk reaction to ensure that um, w- there's continuity of operations. But now that we're coming, I, I think we just had the year anniversary of kind of going into lockdown, CIOs at organizations are taking a more strategic look at what the next normal is. So if I can ask you to put that CIO hat on, if you're a CIO of an organization right now, and you're thinking strategically about that, how is RPA playing a part in that in that strategy? Yeah, so... RPA fits into what we would call the the fully automated enterprise. In other words, all of this new digital emerging technology, such as RPA, artificial intelligence, machine learning, chat bots, natural language processing, all of those type of things 
we're going to create a virtual office that you could think of as some remote office full of people with different skills and different salaries that are being put together to accomplish your agency's mission. Whether that mission is finance related or HR related or it's battlefield damage assessment or if it's uh, transportation and movement of troops, any of the work that you do is going to get done by this fully automated enterprise bringing together digital labor. And RPA is really the piece of that the, where the AI and machine learning is really data driven, you know, being able to pick a person out of a crowd because of data driven uh, models or to be able to do um, weather analysis and prediction because of an artificial intelligence. But once that decision's made by that data monster, you've got to do something with it. And RPA is that piece that replicates your mouse, your keystrokes, the things that are on your screen, and to drive that into work. And I always tell people, Siri is a beautiful thing when you say, what's the temperature? It tells you what the temperature is. That's great information. But while you and I are on this podcast, I could have a bot that is processing all of the travel vouchers for a particular organization or a bot that's working with a pharmacy to evaluate whether or not we have enough pills uh, for that particular pharmacy or using it with AI and having it look at my medical record to see if I might be allergic to that particular brand of medicine. And so the ability to bring all of these together, that's where the CIOs are going to be going. I was hosting a roundtable yesterday and had a number of um, federal executives on there. And one of the patterns that I saw becoming a priority has been the reskilling of employees, ensuring that the education is there across the workforce to be able to facilitate some of these emerging technologies. Is that is that a way that you see the acceleration of some of these technologies being adopted actually playing out across the, the federal and, and state and local landscape? Yes, uh, definitely. It, on a pod, podcast yesterday with the General Services Administration, and they were talking about how their RPA developer workforce are all retrained and reskilled CFO employees, right? Because RPA, unlike, uh, you know, in, in the federal government, FATARA clearly defines who is responsible for a software package. That's the CIO. And as the CIO, you want to provide your lines of business with a platform, a network, secure from cyber defense perspective, and, and an application. Unlike other things in the past, like an SAP or an Oracle or, or any other big product, RPA was really designed for the business unit to manage the processes, not the loaded software, not to put it on a server, not the SQL server connection, all, but the actual activity of the process running through its workflow. And so we've seen at USDA uh, last year under Suzette Kent, um, the federal CIO at the time, they, they've trained 50 people of their employees to do robotic process automation. The post office has a team of people that develop. And that doesn't mean that you you would you know can't get through and with just contract staff or just government staff. You can have a hybrid model where you're using both. You can use contract staff to start your program to kind of accelerate you out the gates and bring your staff in over time. But honestly, unlike any other big technology, because this RPA is the point where you can train CFO employees, we can really democratize the development of the automations 
so that the people closest to the problem are fixing the problem at a speed which we really get good value back to the government. And, and I really hesitate to say return on investment because too many times we think of that as a dollar savings. But if I'm retraining and reskilling people at the IRS or at the post office or at USDA or NASA, and they're solving these problems, maybe I'm solving a, a problem with um, the speed at which we process, the backlog that we need to, to mitigate. Um, I'm going to help some stuff when I deal with um, the auditing and compliance. So there's just a ton of things that make the return on your effort that you could put in the return on in, in investment numbers, but the return on the effort to give citizens better service and to be able to work with cross-agencies things smoother and faster, and yet democratize down to not to every employee in an organization, but closer to the front line of business. Well, and I'm okay with the ROI term because I think of it as a, a personal ROI. Oftentimes, we talk about the envelopment of technology as something that employees are afraid of. I mean, that narrative has been around since the beginning of AI, and it's going to reduce the workforce and, and the machines are going are, are gonna to take over. But I look at this as an ROI personally. I'm able to get a return on my investment because I, I can now go do this higher value work. So it's, it's absolutely a net positive for me. Oh, look, I couldn't agree with you more. We had an amazing uh, class. We have a product called Studio X, which is really designed for that frontline employee. And, and we had a three-day class. The first two days of that class, we teach how to use that product. But the third day, we asked the students to bring a process from the office you know, that they would want to automate. Not the data, just the process. And a lady from the National Science Foundation two weeks ago spent three hours on the third morning building a solution. And when she was done and it was working and she tested it two or three times and said, this is actually working, she said, you don't understand. This is about 739 hours of my year, about 18 of my weeks. What will I be able to do now that I've got this extra time back because I just have to tell the bot to do that work for me. And so it's not a case of where the bots are coming to take your job. The interns, the digital interns are coming to work with you to augment the tasks that you have to do so that you can do the things that they can't do and they can do the things that you don't want to do. I think being able to quantify that's a huge accelerant for this, this technology because as a marketer, uh, someone who does business with the government, I'm constantly taking a, a top-down, bottom-up approach to, to my engagement. And right there, you're quantifying it for the end user. They're taking a look at, like you said, hours, days, weeks of their time that they're now getting back. So, I mean, talk about ROI right there. And to a CIO, you amplify that across the workforce, and you're looking at, at months of time honestly, at that point. So it, I think that's a huge, um, a huge value for anybody who's trying to uh, work with the government. But what other accelerants are you seeing around RPA? We talk about reskilling. We talk about save time. Um, what other type of accelerators do you see? Yeah, so this partnering of, of intelligent automation with RPA, uh, a wonderful example. So one of the things that I personally noticed over the the last year 
our agencies are actually seeing the successes that RPA promised. Fast, agile, works. It's, it's just a solid platform for them to use. And so the GSA, in addition to, to the community of practice that they have, they've helped other agencies stand up. USDA, if you go to usda.gov RPA, they are proud enough of their program that they lay it out there for the public to look at. And you can see some of the bots that they have built and what those bots do and the value that those bots are bringing. But I was amazed at a story and I connected the dots yesterday because I had not before. The GSA told me a story that was exactly like a story I heard two weeks ago from the IRS on our AI summit that we had. We had a webinar with them and they said, The National Defense Authorization Act requires agencies to put in some specific text into every contract that they have. And the the chief procurement officer at the IRS did a calculation, and they felt like it was going to take them just at a year to go through all of their contracts, enter in this text into the contract, and move on. Now, that would be one, two, or three people doing it throughout the year, but it was going to take that long. The chief procurement officer, not the CIO's office, responsible, the procurement office responsible for the process, took intelligent automation, AI and machine learning, along with RPA, and took two weeks to build a solution that when they hit the run button, took three days to update every contract that the chief procurement officer had with the required text from the National Defense Authorization Act and save them 47 weeks. Of having to keep doing that. No, that's a, that's an incredible story. I think, I mean, it just speaks to the savings. You, one of the things you touched on before, um, and and I do want to highlight it real quick, is kind of the security aspects of it, because you have these bots that are going in and out of disparate systems to facilitate the work. It kind of it feels like it opens up the door a little bit from a security standpoint. How secure are these RPA platforms? Yeah, so when we started at NASA, we we created the first bot. So, of course, we had to name the very first bot George Washington. And (laughs) so um, decided that in order for George Washington to work at NASA, that that bot needed to have its own credentials, the exact same credentials as any human. Now, fast forward a couple of years, the OMB 1917 memorandum that directed agencies to figure out but to do to give their automations uh, non-person entities credentials. In other words, let's don't go backwards in our security posture because we've got bots. So I mentioned earlier, we have attended and unattended bots. If you have an attended bot on your computer, that's truly your personal digital intern. It goes home with you and your laptop. It comes to work and starts working when you do. It's going to use your credentials. And when you log in, it's going to log in exactly the same way you do. And everything that it does in an audit perspective is going to look like you. On the unattended bot, back in a server room on a virtual machine that's doing some heavy processing for you at night, that's doing scans of documents and filing those documents into record systems, or it's doing updates to your SAP, you want it to have its own credentials and log in also so that it can encrypt and decrypt emails that come to it so that it can log on via a virtual private network to some other location to pull data. You you wouldn't want the bots to be less secure. But the other thing you gain from from this is 
you know, there's no robots that sit around a water cooler and talk to each other. There's no robots that do collusion. So things that are kind of, you know, because a lot of times you'll see that, that security, the biggest problem you have is internal. So the bot promises to never open an email that it gets from FedEx that says your package is late. You sit there and say, I don't even remember having a package, but let me click it and see. And you unleash a virus across your network. You train your bots to open the emails that you want them to open from the people that you want to be open from based on some criteria that's in that email. Not, hey, I'm to see what this says. So you get a lot of extra security, kind of intangible, no phishing problems, uh, no talking about the uh, with each other about how to collude to steal some money. So just using RPA, you immediately get a better security posture. But in addition to that, because I'm using all of the same login and passwords, a defense logistics agency, to their credit, said, you know, we'd like to be more secure. And so they put in the hardware security module from Thales so that every time the bot runs, it gets its a new credential. They said that would make it even more secure than our people, and we'll feel better about that. Well, if I'm dealing with troop movement and transportation and, and logistics and that, being better than average is a great idea. But I don't think you can make a case for you you miss a step. On your network, what you gain is a solid security footing for a portion of your workforce, the digital workforce, that you can measure and monitor in a way that you cannot measure your people. Is there an identity access management side of things there? Oh, certainly. So George Washington, again, uh, had his own credentials, right, a PIV card. And, and this was very early on. So we had a card. We popped it in the computer and we locked it away in a wall locker. But, but that was our effort to make sure we started from where we stood today. But NASA has the, the um, NASA Access Management System, NAMS. And in order for me to have access to certain applications, I would have to put in a request for access, whether it was read or write or a login or a password or whatever. And that's all tracked to make sure that I don't get access to things I'm not authorized. In order for George to do the work that he needed to do, we had to go into the NAM system and put in a request for the, the particular access that we needed. And it was at the point where we were trying to use the robot to do both accounts receivable type work and accounts payable type work when the, the CFO's office said, no, no, wait a minute. We don't let people have those two accesses together. So there's a Jim that does accounts receivable and there's a Mary that does accounts payable, but not one person doing both. And so it just seems to reason that we needed to create the John Adams bot, the second bot in the U.S. government, because we needed to have that separation of duties. I get it. A true geek will say, oh, wait a minute, you would just clear the cash. And no, no, it was easier for the finance office folks to just really appreciate. We have two bots that run separate processes, and then they both have their own set of responsibilities and roles. And that makes us feel more comfortable. It's worth it to help people feel comfortable about the automations. It's not just something we want to say, here it is, you must use it. So how complex then is the ecosystem that these bots evolve into? Because it's, with this identity access managed component, I'm guessing single sign-on uh, components to keep everything secure, but also efficient. Um, is this an ecosystem that you guys come in and build at UiPath, or is this something you fit into within the agency with what they already have running? 
Yeah, so the footprint for the bot software itself that the CIO is going to run, the orchestrator, the robots, the, the task mining software to help them accelerate the requirements program or their automation hub, uh, which allows them to do their ideation, that's a very small fr- footprint, right? It, it's just software on a server or two and a SQL database, and, and they're up and running and, and all. After that, the bots are so lightweight that they, they don't really do anything other than put one piece of software on a laptop, and that's your attended bot. And from then on, they just mimic and emulate the human's mouse, screen, clicks, all that type of stuff. You know, it took me the longest time to appreciate there was one thing that makes RPA a little difficult at first, and that is the speed at which it works. And so you could inadvertently create a denial of services if everybody could do whatever they want. But because you allow for role-based access and because you have security and, and audits in place, I can't make my bot on my laptop do any more than what I can do. I can just do it faster. And so a perfect example of that during the middle of COVID, the PPP loans are out. Um, the banks were trying to process these loans for small businesses as fast as they could. And the Small Business Administration had to come out and say, you can't use robots. Well, it wasn't because they didn't like robots. You know, there was no discrimination against robots. It was the system at Small Business Administration couldn't take it in that fast. And that was creating a denial of services, and therefore no one could get their loans processed. Now, I might have taken a robot and put it in front of that system and had it hold and kind of act as an air traffic controller and, and throttled it in at the speed with which they could take it. But you could, that's the one place where you could accidentally create a problem just because of the speed at which you're going to a system. Plenty of agencies have already realized that, and they just throttle. They tell the bot, hey, only do one every 15 seconds. Only do them during the afternoon when the, when the load on the network is lower. Or check the network to see what the congestion rate is and if it's at a certain threshold, work or don't work. And so they're learning that one little piece. But otherwise... It's a very small footprint. We're in 79 or a little bit more than that federal agencies, 11 states and three or four counties now. And no one's having a problem with it. It's the size of the new stuff on the network. It's extremely lightweight to, to layer on, given the amount of work that it brings, the savings, the, the audit capabilities, the con, um, backlog reduction that it gives you. Because you know, essentially, I'm doubling or tripling a person's ability to work. Now, if I give you a bot and you're a processor of a certain type of benefit and you've been doing eight of them a day because it takes you, you know, 45 minutes to do an entire thing, if I give you a bot and it pre-processes uh-huh. you can suddenly do 16 or 20 a day. And you could have a bot at night pre-processing even those new applications so that your personal bot does even more of that work. Right? Gartner just phrased up, really like the way they phrased it, what can be or should be automated, will be eventually. And so everything is not going to be able to be automated. There's going to be things that humans have to sit and say, here's the budget, the bot show me an anomaly. That's where the humans needed. Finding the anomaly, let the bot do that. Spend more time walking down the hallway, talking to Mary or Bob or Sam, saying, hey, what's this anomaly? Why is our budget out of whack? What's this security intel thing from our CISO last night? Were we hacked? Do we need to go look at something? That's what we need to be doing. All of this data that we've been 
getting from these computers. Let's just let them work together between themselves and, and create a better workforce. So help me understand this, because first of all, I, I agree with everything you just said, because to me, when I take a look at the future of government work, that's really what it is. It's kind of the the amplification of the workforce or working alongside of technology, whether it's RPA or AI or whatever that technology is to advance the worker and amplify their value. But one of the biggest challenges that CIOs and CTOs in all levels of government face right now is legacy infrastructure. We've been having um, uh, just a lack of budget focus on modernizing some of these systems. But what I've heard is that RPA supports kind of the linking of these legacy systems to ensure that they remain efficient. Help me or help me understand what that looks like. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of places in legacy. So one, if I'm just a CIO and I've got a data center full of old stuff and we heard old stuff at the beginning of COVID when New Jersey made a cry out, please, if you're a COBOL developer, it come out of retirement. We need you. Well, I honestly thought COBOL was gone, right? I think, now, I think everybody did. Yeah, well, it's not. And the um, National Finance Center down in East uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, still uses it. So here's all this COBOL out there, and you need to migrate it over. Traditionally, we would bring in 30 or 40 people and we would just move that data manually, right? They would go in, they would get a piece of data, they'd grab it, they'd clean it, they'd shift it, and they'd move it over. And that could take you weeks or months. You know, the, the military's logistic system, taking the old system and moving it to a new system, just bring in some soldiers and have them spend their weekends and nights, right? Well, it's necessary. I mean, no, no question about it. It's necessary that we get that done. Let's go develop an API take quite a while to develop and it's going to be expensive for somebody to build it for us. And then we'll let that move, do the translation for us. What if we just did what the, the folks at IRS did? Let's spend a couple weeks mapping out the keystrokes that a person would do. And then let's turn it loose for three or four days and see how much of the data gets migrated. Right. The exact same thing happened in New York State during the middle of the pandemic. They have some hundred thousand or more backlogs on unemployment claims. And they spent just a couple of days putting together a bot that over the weekend started to work on that. And then they realized there was so much backlog that a bot can only work like a person 24 hours a day. But because this technology lends itself to say, well, just assign another bot to it. Right? They use literally the same instruction set. They just go into a directory and say, if there's a file there, pull the first one. And two and three, and they ultimately got to over 200 robots nugging away at this backlog and cleared their backlog of unemployment claims in three days. And that didn't mean everybody got a check in three days. It means that the backlog of the forms just sitting there waiting to be processed just got started. And so legacy systems because as I said before, keyboard, mouse, and screen, this technology says, sure, you have a Macintosh, we'll work with you. Hey, I'll log into your system across the web and you're an old mainframe and you've got the green screens. We'll just bounce from one screen part to the next. You know, it's just the same way that if I asked an, an employee, hey, I need you to move this old legacy data off the mainframe onto this new machine. They would go and swivel over to the left, find all the information, bundle it somehow, or 
God forbid, have to sit there and type it into the other system. Well, let's just have the same thing happen. Highlight it with your mouse, put it in the new system. It will be done exactly the same way by the bot every single time. Now, if you throw in a little automation in there, some AI or machine learning to clean up your data as you're going. I mean, in the past, we just moved from A to B. But what if we can move from A to K? Because we checked the data, we cleaned the data, we validated the data, we made sure the data within was in the range. And when it wasn't, we had a human in the loop opportunity to say, give that to Margaret and let Margaret tell the model if it's right or not. If it's right, the RPA will tell the model, here's the right answer, and it'll get smarter. If it's wrong, she will fix it right then and send it into the workflow. So it's not as if we're trying to eliminate people. We're trying to eliminate repetitive mundane tasks that are part of your workday. Exactly. If you get freed up for 20 minutes, I bet there's 20 minutes of work that you haven't been able to get to. Or I bet there's 20 minutes of you thinking about your work that will make the outcome of your work better for citizens or for fellow agencies in your cross-agency mission. Yeah, I think that example personifies exactly what I was saying, really the the future of work being in, uh, the human in the loop side of things, that, that human being right there to work alongside the technology. But this entire conversation to me begs the question, because you've done a really good job of simplifying the technology, simplifying the value, then why isn't it everywhere? And I think we look at technology, um, there's always inhibitors to adoption, right? When when we started going cloud first, security was a large inhibitor. With RPA, what are some of those inhibitors that are keeping this from literally being everywhere? Yeah, so there's a great um, study that's out that um, Scoop News did. And in openness, they, they did it. We sponsored the study. Um, but it, it found that the top three reasons why federal and state agencies not using RPA were that they, there was a lack of training, that they weren't really sure what to automate, and that they were concerned about security. And so to address the security issue, I really would turn to anybody that's new and refer them to one of our clients. They'll say, hey, would you like to talk to NASA? Would you like to talk to USDA, IRS? Uh, would you like to talk to the Navy? You know, NAVWAR was one of the earlier Navy adopters. DASA FIM over at the Army Finance. And let us connect you because you need them to tell you that they have not had a security issue. And I think um, the training issue is like anything, right? Word, I remember at my at Officer Advanced Camp, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, we had 40 hours of training on WordPerfect. And I, this was word processing was brand new. We had these huge Zenith laptops. I get to my first assignment out with 11th ACR on the border, and I walk into the ops room, and we sit down, and they don't have WordPerfect. They've got display right. And I had to say, well, thankfully, I had a week of training on a word processor, but now i got to figure out how to use this one. So like any technology, getting people in a classroom, building a bot, like the, the, the folks from the National Science Foundation and from CMS a couple of weeks ago doing a little three-day class on building an automation. And so you, you get those. And then, of course, the other one is that everyone wants to put their toe in the water. Well, NASA put their toe in the water. They did that, and uh, GSA put their toe in the water, and DASAFEM put their toe in the water. And those three agencies told other agencies, hey, you can wade up to your knee, right? And then you got your USDAs and your DLAs and your 
uh, other agencies that have started to look at it, they got in the knee up in the water. And, and, and that was needed so that CIOs could get it on there and make sure it was secure and that it was going to break things. And it was really was fast and relatively easy to use as we were thinking and to build a governance model around it. Because just like the iTunes store, anybody can build an app. But not everybody can get their app through the iTunes store's governance to protect the iTunes and Apple infrastructure. And so you want to have a center of excellence that's going to manage governance to check all of your bots. Well, at this point, we have already put our toes in. We've gotten our knees in. The lifeguard is blowing the whistle. And the federal RPA community of practice reports from last year show like a 175% increase in the agencies adopting RPA. And so really, I think what you're going to find this year is a lot wider adoption of not only RPA, but, but again, to achieve that fully automated enterprise, you're going to really think of a recreational area where people are boating and they're fishing, and they're swimming, they're using AI, they're using machine learning, they're using natural language processes, and they've got RPA weaving all through that. Because enough agencies have reached that tipping point that they realize we can think of bigger solutions and challenges that we have. If you're an agency, how do you how do you take a look and designate certain processes to be automated? How do you know which ones are right for it and which ones are not? Yeah, so if you're at GSA, you say if we do the, the numbers and it's not going to save us 2,000 hours, it's not a good candidate. They want to save at least 2,000 hours on any automation that they build. You go through a little selection process. It, you know, Everybody differs, but it could be anywhere from 8 to 12 to 15 questions. You know, Is the process that you're doing pretty much standard? Is it automated or semi-automated or fully automated? Is it highly transactional or does it happen once a quarter? You know, how many people are involved with this? I, I did some some stuff with the, for the VA, just looking at their issues, and they have an organization where there are 900 VA employees that do uh, this reconciliation program. Well, 900 people. Let me give them all a bot for a highly automated and known process, and and let that bot do most of the work. You know, that half of the work, and suddenly for the VA. They will have the equivalent, instead of 900 employees doing eight a day, they will have the equivalent of 1,800 employees doing nine to 10 a day. They won't know what a backlog is after they get past that first surge. And so you, you do want to sit down and you want to do an ideation session and says, what are the good processes that meet certain criteria? Because if you don't, um, now I'm, I'm not an anti-proponent of automate a bad process. At the end of the day, if you automate a bad process, at least you know that process now. It's now standard because the bot will do it every uh, time the same way. It's faster than it was. And maybe it was relatively easy to do. But I'm also a big proponent. I had a great conversation with the um, master black belt of the post office a few weeks ago. And, and they want to make sure that their continuous process improvement program through their Lean Six Sigma brings in everybody to do a full Kaizen event for the really big end-to-end muscle movers. And if you're doing one activity on every letter that goes through the post office, you don't want to automate a bad process there. I think so that that's a really good point because one of the things that that I saw when COVID hit was organizations just wanted to throw technology 
at bad processes because there was really no other choice. Um, now that we've kind of we have our heads up and we can be more strategic. It feels like now you have to really take a look at that process and it can't just be all about the technology. It has to be culture, process, and technology all woven together. That's right. I, I would say that you want to have this, what I would call an automation first mindset that you want to ask yourself, do we automate this? And if we do, what's the first thing we do after this? And what's the first thing we do after that? How far can we automate this process? Can we get it end to end? What's the value of getting the first part done? Or is it more valuable to do the end part of it? And, and to really look at, as the GSA always, they have a great little story about how they looked at 10 processes to automate and found one of them that nobody was actually using. The person doing the work it did it every month because no one ever said stop. So as a part of continuous process improvement, they killed that process. Wonderful thing. You know, let's get rid of all the processes we're doing that don't actually add value. And let's improve the ones that do. Hey, Jim, I've enjoyed this conversation. I've definitely learned a lot about RPA. Any final thoughts you wanted to leave the audience with today? Yeah, I would say that you know we, we all in our private lives are happy to go to American Airlines and book our own ticket, pick our own seat, tell them what kind of food we want them to bring to our seat when the plane takes off. We're happy to call Uber and say, I want a, a cab. I want the equivalent of a cab right here at this location. We love the online bank. Neatest thing since sliced bread to me is the ability to take my iPhone, take a picture of a check and have it deposited. So in our private lives, we just are really embracing digital. We're not complaining about those type of things. When Grubhub brings the lunch that I wanted and exactly what I wanted, we love it. We should really be looking at when an automation first mindset, as we start to democratize our ability to, to do it ourselves, to embrace it in the government workspace so that citizens can get faster, better service, so that we can go home when our kids have a concert, so that we can get off on time and not have to be slaves to, oh, we missed something on a PowerPoint slide, or we didn't quite update this day. No, no, we haven't been doing that all day. The bots have been doing that for us. We've been doing analysis, and we've been doing discussions with other members to make things smarter and better for all of us as a society. Because at the end of the day, you want to do automation for good, not for automation's sake. Really good point. Thanks uh, Thanks again for being here, Jim. Really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, same here, Brian. Thank you for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.